prophetic history. That's like my favorite time every year. Um, and to be honest, there's probably a lot of you here that are very familiar with the prophetic history, um, and it's probably something that still makes your heart come alive. For some of you here, you may have never heard the prophetic history as far as, and all that means is like how we were established. And ultimately, part of the reason we're going to be sharing it in the context of our prayer series is ultimately what we are doing here today. All of you that are gathered, all of the teams we have in place, you know, at the house of prayer that's going on. I was actually realizing Friday night, we had the youth ministry there meeting. We had the college ministry doing a campus tour. That night, there was night watch. Like, the things that were going on on Friday night, I was like, with a small community of people, there's a lot happening. There's a lot of ministry. There's a lot of... And for those of you that are intricately involved, you feel that <laughs> deeply. Um, but with that said, ultimately, what if you guys might have actually met, Laura Toronto was here a couple weeks ago. I actually wasn't here, but she's Heidi Baker's assistant now. But at the time, she was a student at MIT. And she, we did 40 days of prayer and fasting here with Lou Engel. And during that time, basically, they ended up leaving town, like the big kind of national ministry all exited. And I was left here with me and three other young adults. And we basically stayed in the dorm with Laura and just prayed. And everybody in the city was like, where's the house of prayer going to be? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Like, <laughs> they would ask me questions. I'd say, I have no idea. We're just going to pray. That's all we're going to do. We're going to pray. And ultimately, from a handful of people praying in a dorm room, the house of prayer was established. Out of that came a church that was birthed. And so what I say is that sometimes the, the smallness and the pitifulness of prayer, of just kind of we look weak. And to be honest with you, I was, what, 26 years old. Um, I had left my job. I had no guaranteed income. I had no major financial backing. Um, the whole story is a little bit of a comedy if you really get into the details of it. Um, but with all that said, it is a testimony of prayer, and so you're really going to hear that. But I want to say two things to you before we even start is, number one, actually, I'm going to read to you out of um, 1 Timothy to give you context of why we're going to be reviewing this. 1 Timothy 1.18 says, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage a good warfare. What is he saying? He's saying the prophecies that have been given to you are the tools by which you wage a good warfare. How many of you guys are using the prophetic words, whether they actually be, you can take the written word of God as the promise of God over you, apply them and wage a good warfare for your life. If your life does not match and align with the word of God, you use the word of God as warfare to say, this is what God's word says. This is his promise over me. And I am believing and contending for it. But also how many of you guys have ever received a prophetic word? It's okay, it didn't have, oh, there's a good number of you. We've got some charismatics in the house today. So, but you know what's funny is a lot of you, you might not have even been called out by some kind of prophet, but somebody came to you and said, hey, you know, I was praying, or I, I had a, a vision or a dream of you. And there's something I want to say to you, there's probably many of you in this place that have had words spoken over you, and you don't even remember them. That's not a good thing. And you know what? That's not a good thing. We always expect, we're wanting God to speak to us. Speak to me, God. Why is he going to speak to us when he gives us his word and then we do not hold it and carry it dearly? Pray over it, cover it, and contend for the full. We don't even remember what he spoke. 
But how many of you guys, I know that there's been seasons in my life when I've been seeking the Lord for a new word or a new direction. Speak to me. Give me another call, please. You know, something like that. And in the midst of asking him for a word, all he does is remind me of something that was already spoken. And what it does is it resurrects clarity. It resurrects vision inside of me because it was his word and it still remains. He still has that promise, and I haven't seen it fulfilled, so therefore I can't move aside yet. Now can I? John Piper actually says the greatest enemy of hope is that we forget the promises of God. The greatest enemy of hope in your life is that you forget the promises of God. And so you know what he says? He says reminding is a great ministry. How many of you guys have the ministry of reminding? Remind yourself of God's word. Remind yourself of his promises over you. I want you just for a moment, I want you to close your eyes. I'm actually going to pray that if you haven't had a prophetic word spoken over you, that God would use someone. Or even if it's, I'm going to be honest with you, sometimes it's not even another voice. You can be reading the word of God and something just comes alive in your heart. There's something of a promise. It comes off the page. So I'm going to ask for those of you that have not received a prophetic promise that God would be faithful to speak a word to your heart. But I'm also going to pray that for those of you that are in this place, that there's promises that have been spoken to you that you've forgotten. Or maybe you haven't forgotten. You've actually just laid them down and stopped believing God for them. I'm going to pray that those things would be resurrected in your heart today. And that we, like the charge that was given to Timothy, that by them you would wage a good warfare. Father, I thank you, Father, for every person that is under the sound of my voice. And God, we thank you, Lord, that you are a good father. You are kind and compassionate and that you are not silent. And God, that sometimes, Lord, when we feel as though you're silent, Lord, ultimately you have already spoken. You have already made known your will and your desire, and you're looking for us to have a heart of response and to be obedient in what you've called us to. So God, I ask, Lord, every person under the sound of my voice, God, the promises that you've given today, God, the promises that have been spoken to some of them since their childhood, Lord, would we be found, Lord, with the ministry of reminding, reminding ourselves and even reminding you of what you've spoken, that this is what you have said and you are a man of your word. You are true to your word. God, I ask, Lord, for every person under the sound of my voice, God, that sometimes when promises do not come to pass in our timing, Lord, where we begin to question and wander and doubt and even sometimes get offended. God, I thank you, Father, that your timing is perfect. And even in delays, it is your kindness to us. So, God, I ask, Lord, that we would be found with a people, as a people, Lord, that trust you. Lord, that we would trust you with every detail. And, Lord, that we would be found without offense, but we would be found with a heart that is in hope believing you for your word, Father. Amen. So this is why we review prophetic history, because from the very inception of what we are doing, there's promises God's spoken to us, and we haven't even scratched the surface 
of seeing them yet. We're at the beginning of the beginning of the beginning. Some people like, you know, friends of mine from different parts of the country are like, can you believe what God is birthing in Boston? I'm like, it hasn't even started yet, people. Like, we're just at the beginning of the beginning of the beginning. So um, this is just to give you guys a little perspective. And so there's some of you here today that Boston, God has called you here. He's called you to labor here. And so this is going to give you context and this is going to give you understanding as far as his purposes for this region so that you can wage a good warfare. And there's other ones of you that this may not be home. This might not be where you're called to be. Um, but this will actually just ignite your heart with faith to continue on a journey of faith and b- believing and responding to God's word. So um, just a little bit of background um, <clears throat> because a lot of what I'll share actually kind of co- goes back. And this is what's amazing about how consistent God is. <laughs> so, 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 so consistent. Um, so I had the privilege um, in high school of having a wonderful, wonderful private education. And as part of that, one of the tracks that I was able to study um, was actually revival history. And so it was during that time, during certain assigned reading that I had in studying revival history. Um, how many of you guys have ever read the, read the book, The Light and the Glory by Peter Marshall and David Manuel? If you haven't read it, you should read it. Maybe that's something we should put in our bookstore. <laughs> um, the light and the glory. And this is what I'm going to say. I know that right now we're sitting in a room of people that have um, received education from ve- very, uh, like a broad spectrum of places. And so your education may have taught you many, 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 many things about uh, American history. There's two things I'm going to say to you. <laughs> Number one, if anybody tells you that we were like only Christian, meaning in the sense that everything was righteous, everything was godly, everything was pure, everything was Bible, they're absolutely wrong because there's obviously mixture in, 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 in everything ultimately because God's using human beings that are broken and fractured just like you. And so... Because the expectation, sometimes you hear kind of like people want to bring up certain arguments of certain things. Oh, at the end of the day, there was humanity that was involved. But if you can't, if you don't actually know and you haven't read some of the history, and this is what I'll even say to you, at the very, very founding of our nation, every single town that was founded, it was not considered a township until, number one, they had established a covenant with God. That was the first thing that they did. They established covenant with God. You can go through and find those covenants. They'll blow your face off. Like, (laughs) I mean, it was so like they were making covenant of walking in pure religion and dealing rightly in worship and the place of worship, and they would build their church first. That was actually the first like building that would be built in town. So try to tell me that we weren't a Christian nation when it was all founded and centered around that in society. Um, but like I said, yes, there are there's things that are tainted and broken and, and not a reflection of who God is, but it's because he's using humanity. And if you look at King David himself, he was a man after God's own heart, but there was a lot of brokenness and there was a lot of mistakes there. So we can't hold our founding fathers to any different of a standard than, number one, we would hold ourselves or even to our biblical heroes that we look at. So just, you know, so if you're kind of like, ah, we have no Christian heritage, you haven't read history or your, your source has been very, very wrong. So, um, and actually you should join us for the Boston State House tour. How many of you guys joined us with Paul Jaley, the historian? Unbelievable. It was unbelievable, wasn't it? Just unbelievable. Um, So anyway, I read The Light and the Glory amongst several other things, but this is all I'm going to say to you. At 16 years old, when I read The Light and the Glory, in reading that book, I began to realize, number one, John Winthrop, when he was aboard the Arabella, 
he actually penned something called the Model for Christian Charity. And as I was reading, can you imagine that was actually what he was penning aboard the Arabella coming to the New World, is the model for Christian charity. And it was basically the model on how they would establish their, their government and how they would operate together as a community of people. And in that, he quoted Matthew chapter 5, 14, and we shall be a city set upon a hill and a light to all peoples, that we might be the stepping stone for the gospel to the nations of the earth. It was all, and to be honest, if you read it, that, that document alone is terrifying in the sense that he actually quotes Joel as well, that if we deal rightly with our God, that he will make us a praise in the nations. But if we deal falsely with our God, that he will make us a byword in the nations of the earth. And he said, let it be said of us that from years from now that they'll say, make it like that of New England. Like meaning the favor of God was so in their midst that whatever they did to get God's favor, let's do that. This was what they were setting for. So reading John Winthrop and all of these promises and things and then moving forward and reading revival history, I began to realize God had a dream. There was something in God's heart. These men and women didn't just come of their own accord, of their own desire, of their own wanting. There was something. They didn't even come with their own ambition that they would be some high and lofty great ruler or what America would be. It was all centered around the gospel being preached to the ends of the earth. That's an amazing vision to found a community on. How many of you guys want to go find some, some island way off nowhere that no one has ever found and have a vision to pioneer that to be for the preaching of the gospel to the ends of the earth? You want to start that one? Who, who, who wants to be our pioneer? <laughs> But anyhow, in reading all the, the American history and realizing God had a dream. And I can remember at 16 years of age going, I want to see his dream happen. I want to see New England be all that it dreamed. And when I say New England, obviously America, but I was reading New England history. So. <laughs> but I began, and so there I was, and you know, at 16, you know, they start asking you and kind of coaching you through, what do you want to do when you grow up? You know, they, they're kind of coaching you on what you should be studying when you go to college and prepping you for all that stuff. Well, at my school they were. And I can remember over and over when they would ask me, what do you want to do? I'd say, I just want to see God's dream for New England. That's what I want. I, I want to see the dream that he had. I'm looking at these things and realizing that these men and these women, they, they penned these things. And they're still alive in God's heart. You know, the, the rest of us might, might think that this is a bastion of secularism and intellectualism and all of those things. But that's not what God had intended. But then when you go on to read revival history, you realize that Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, look him up, study him out of Northampton. He himself said that he had a vision that out of New England would come an extraordinary, extraordinary move of prayer that would bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. He, a united agreement of prayer is what he saw in his spirit. And I can remember even reading and thinking, Jonathan Edwards, that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> that has not happened. But when you read of these old men and women and the dreams that they had in their heart, now sitting back, I always sit back and think, these men and women had no idea and no context that years from now, the land where they were in and laboring, that the nations of the earth would be coming there. 
Here they are penning these things as far as the gospel being preached to the ends of the earth. Do you realize how impossible that sounds? Especially when it takes you like six months to come aboard a, a boat from Europe and travel was so delayed. I mean, they were talking about grandiose vision and grandiose things that in that day and time, the amount of time it even caught, it took for news to travel from one point to another. But the gospel preached to the ends of the earth. Why is that? It's because God put a seed in their heart. God put a vision in their heart. And so there they are penning it and writing it and speaking it out kind of into the cosmos. Not knowing that years later, here we are, the nations of the earth gathered here. And that ultimately, if God pours out his spirit in Boston and touches the universities and the colleges of, of this area, that then these students go back to the nations of the earth. The whole thing is profound and mind-blowing, but ultimately for me, as a young teenager, I began going, God, I want to see your dream. I want to see. And then if you study further on in history, for those of you that don't know, out of Massachusetts was actually the, where the first missionaries were sent from. And so not only does Massachusetts have an incredible revival history, it also has an incredible history of missions in the student volunteer missions movement. So... <clears throat> I had spent a season of, of time um, from 1996 to 1999, um, <clears throat> and it was around that time I had visited IHOP. They were just getting started, and I had done my first 40-day fast. I actually, for those of you, I'm going to give like a little context here, because if you're not familiar, the call was in, and the reason I'm going to give this context is because throughout the story, you'll hear kind of laced a particular name and family. Um, is around that time there was something called the call. And so what happened was, is I had actually heard, it was Dutch Sheets for those of you that don't know him, he had actually said, what if there was a million young people on the, the Washington Mall and we prayed and we fasted for the nation? And when I heard him say that, for me it wasn't like a, well, what if there was a million young people? I was like, that needs to happen. So that was actually my first 40 days, like, liquid fast in my life. I thought I was going to die. Like, it wasn't a very common thing like it is now. I remember at that point in time asking people, like, have you done this? Did you live through it? You know, and, you know, at that point in time, I think I was 21 years old, and my parents are like, you'll die. You'll never be able to have children. You know, like, <laughs> you'll mess up, like, your reproductive system or something. You know, and it was all, everybody was terrorized. I lived. I'm alive. Um, but around that time, we had ended up hearing about the call. And it's really interesting because so I'm praying and fasting for the call. Around that time, I don't remember how, but somebody contacted us. We, I was living in New Hampshire at the time. And somebody contacted us and asked us if we would mobilize for the call, the state of New Hampshire, and help with New England. So we ended up getting in touch with some people out of Connecticut. We ended up doing that. And through a series of events, we actually, when Lou came to New Hampshire, we ended up meeting him and becoming very good friends. And the reason I'm actually going to pause on this point before we move forward with the rest of the story is it's very, very important to find family. Yes, your physical family, to have good relationships, right relationships, but family in the sense of who has God knit your heart together in vision with? Like vision, like heart, that place of family. And if you don't have it, you need to not be content to be outside of it, but to find that place of family, 
to find. And the reason I say that is it's kind of very common in this generation to kind of be kind of nomadic. We all jump. Like we're in one organization ministry for six months. We're liking it. It's going good. As soon as it's not going our way and people aren't doing what or giving us the platforms we want, we're going to go to the next one. We're going to try that out. We're going to do that there. Six months later, you know, we're jumping. And to be honest with you, there's no real roots of relationship, of accountability, of maturity. I mean, it's only after a period of time in relationship that you have an opportunity to go, yeah, these people aren't as shiny as they looked <laughs> when I first got here. But that's actually where love is forged. That's where relationship is forged. So I'm not, I'm not condemning you if you haven't found fan, family, but what I'm saying to you is you need to find it. Instead of being okay just jumping from here to here, Find out, and if, if God doesn't speak to you concerning a group of people or a community of people, you need to ask him to knit your heart together in a place because it's healthy for you. So for, and I say that because over the past, uh, let's see, that was 2000, so it's been 17 years. Over the past 17 years, there's been points and times organizationally that things have changed with kind of our, the founders of our ministry, that Daryl and I have looked at people, at each other, and said, you know, we've got friends here, friends doing this, friends leading this, maybe we want to migrate to a new family. <laughs> you know, we've actually kind of said, maybe that family works a little differently. But you know what happens when you pray and you say, this is where God has aligned us. This is where I have history. This is, and, and even clearly, I'm not saying that God never can and never won't realign people. But for us, we look and we say, this is our family and this is our history. And this is where God's called us. And we have identity there. And so with that said, this is actually a, a comical strand of events. So during, um, we're all getting ready to go to D.C. And Lou starts calling and leaving. This is back when we didn't have cell phones, I feel like. I feel like I didn't have a cell phone. I had a home answering machine at my house. And I would come in and hear Lou's voice on my answering machine saying, I need you to pray during the call. I need you to pray during, you know, about the Nazarite thing. And I very much, if you know me very well, I am not a big fan of self-promotion. <laughs> not at all. Not like at all. So my, my take at 21, 22 years old was kind of like, I'm sure he says that to everybody. I'm not calling the poor guy back because I'm sure he has kids all across the U.S. that want to get up on the stage and do something. So I didn't call him back. I was just like, yeah, we're all set. So he calls day two, the, you know, a couple days later, another phone. My mom's like, um, that man's calling again. That man is calling again. <laughs> he's asking for a phone call back. Did you not call him back? I'm like, no, I'm sure every state he goes to, he feels like he's got to like follow up with these kids that he promised things to. And so finally the third time he called, my mom goes, this is rude. This is just very rude. <laughs> she said, it's fine if you want to tell him, you know, that you don't want to do it, but it's rude. So I called him, explained to him. I said, hey, you know what? I could care less about being on the stage. And that's not really, I'd rather just put my face in the dirt for 12 hours and pray for our nation. So we go, and mind you, the call has since that time done a lot of amazing things. We go the day before. Organizationally, this is where it was at the time. We gathered on the Washington Mall, like Lou and a handful of like mothers and fathers in the faith, and like 20 young adults. Lou's like, I'm not sure what's gonna happen tomorrow. I don't know how any of this is gonna go. <laughs> I mean, honestly, at that time, there was not a lot of organization the next day Four, was it 400,000? That's actually what he says. The parks and recs of D.C. say it's closer to like 600,000. But show up at the Washington Mall. 
And mind you, this is, I love, I love how our American culture and society does everything, how we put up all like the big names of the, Sean Boltz, like if you come, he might call you out. Sean Boltz is coming. And you know, all the big worship leaders and all of our feel good lose policy was, I'm not announcing any speakers. I'm not announcing any worship leaders. I'm not sticking their face on a billboard. I'm not trying to draw you to a feel good meeting. He wouldn't announce anything other than 12 hours of prayer and fasting. And he called it, nobody likes this kind of language, he called it a solemn assembly. Hmm. Who goes for a solemn? Solemn. That doesn't invoke any like happy feelings now, does it? Solemn? Go for 12 hours, pray and fast in a solemn. There was no food vendors. I love now, we all go to the events of prayer and fasting, but if you just step right outside, there's a smorgasbord. And then when you're inside, you're like, if I just go out, I can go get a, you know, a taco. You know, nothing. There was, there was no options. You know, you looked around, and if you wanted to, you'd get to like walk, walk downtown DC and find something. Leave the solemn assembly. <laughs> oh my goodness, different days. Different days, <laughs> they were different days. So this was in 2000. Can you imagine between 400 and 600,000 people gather? Lou wasn't known, it wasn't like the call. Everyone wasn't like, oh, Lou Engel, he's gonna rock and spit and fire is gonna come down. Nobody, nobody knew what was gonna happen. It was mysterious. But you know what it was? There was a, a, enough people in a nation that said, we need a move of God. And so they gathered to that sound, to nothing else other than that sound, and we gathered to that sound. And then from that point in time, actually the very next call that we did was in Boston, um, right in Government Center. Um, and at that call, there was about 40,000 people. And I have to just, I, and the reason I want to tell you, is sometimes we look at like certain movements and organizations, and they look really put together, and they look like they're doing their thing, and they got their system, and they're, you know, all of those things. But even, I remember the call in New England because we were very involved in it. It was an organizational disaster. Like nobody knew who was on first and what one was up and you know, <laughs> it was just, and so the day of it was kind of like, what the heck's gonna happen? You know, it was like, but then 40,000 people, which to be honest, I don't know if since that time in the city of Boston, if there's been any kind of gathering like that amongst the churches. And that was in 2001. A long time ago. And mind you, it was a week after 9-11 happened and the pilots left out of Boston. And the city was telling Lou, this is not a safe place to do this. A week after 9-11, church leaders across the country are calling Lou saying, you're putting people at risk by gathering them in a, in a, in a large public place like that. And, he, and his answer was, we are at risk if we don't gather. Our nation is at risk. So there we were and we gathered. <laughs> So that was 2001, but what happened was, is in 2001, we had another one of those episodes. Lou had like a list of things he wanted me to do at it, and I actually said to him, I said, I'm in an, an Esther season. I'm supposed to be hidden. <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't slap me sometimes. And he said, you can go back to being hidden after that day. <laughs> <He's> like, <laughs> and then you just do what you're told. <laughs> um, but at that, and it's amazing, because I mean, he knew some of my history, but at that and this is where kind of bringing us to where we are today, is that at that gathering, he actually had asked me um, to pray Jonathan Edwards' prayer 
as far as the extraordinary move of prayer to bring the gospel to the nations of the earth. It's actually called A Humble Attempt, the, the document that he penned. And so he's, what he said was, he said that nation, that, that generation made a covenant with God and they had a vision to see an extraordinary move of prayer that would bring the gospel to the nations of the earth. He's like, I want you to on that day renew covenant on behalf of a generation that we as a generation would see an extraordinary move of prayer that would bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. So in all honesty, even if we didn't continue with any of our story or what we're doing or how God's established us, if that's all you understood is the vision that God gave Jonathan Edwards of an extraordinary move of prayer that would bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, that's, that is ultimately what we are laboring for as a community of people, that it, there would be an extraordinary move of prayer out of Boston that would bring the gospel. So 2011, at that call, when we were praying at the call New England, the, um, for every call since then, there's always been specific prayer points that we're targeting and kind of believing God for. Usually has to do a lot with historically what took place in, in that region. At that specific call, we were praying for the college campuses, that there would once again be a student volunteer missions movement. We were praying for the redigging of the wells of revival. Um, were those the two main... Oh, and that the um, false ideologies coming out of the colleges of the Northeast, that the, uh, the door of false ideologies would be broken. I mean, shut. So we pray those things. To be honest with you, at that time, I had no heart for the college campuses whatsoever. We went through the motions of the whole day. But after we leave there, obviously something is stirring in my heart. You can't be in the presence of prayer and you know, supplication before the Lord and something sown in your heart. So it's after that point in time, I was raised in a town, uh, Groveland, Massachusetts. It's the next town over from like Bradford in Haverhill. There was a college campus that I used to drive by like almost every day. And at that time, me growing up, I knew it was a liberal arts school. That's all I knew about it, is that it was a liberal arts school. Well, after the call, I'm driving by it one day, and I happen to know it, notice it's like vacant. It's been vacated. Like nobody's on the college campus. It's like shut down. And I'm like, oh, that's so interesting. Like that, that campus is completely vacant. And for some reason, it just like struck my interest. Well, around that time, I started just like thinking and praying, and I was like, I wonder what the history of that college was. I wonder what, so my interest is kind of peaked. Well, then I, the little bit that I start reading, I start realizing that it was an all-girls school. It's actually where Anne Hazeltine went to school. She was a part of that school. school. And for those of you that don't know, Anne Hazeltine married Adonair Judson, and they were the first missionaries that were sent from the U.S., and they left for Burma, India. And so as I start reading about this campus, I'm thinking, well, this is interesting. <laughs> like, we just got done praying about the student volunteer missions movement. We're praying about college campuses in the Northeast. So this campus is empty. And around the same time, I become aware of the Moravians. How many of you guys are aware of the Moravians out of Herrenhut, Germany? So I start reading about the Moravians and realizing if you want to study about missions, to be honest with you, if you really look at missionary endeavors, a lot of it is very, very discouraging because there's a lot of ambition and vision and desire to reach souls, and then there's a lot of going and very little fruit. Often there's very little fruit, and then there's either people that retreat and disillusioned and kind of go back to business as usual, or stay with minimal fruit. But when you look at the Moravians, it's completely different. And number one, the Moravians, they had 100 years of unbroken prayer. Now, when I say unbroken prayer, I literally mean 24-7. Can, can, can your mind even 24-7 prayer for 100 years? What? 
I mean, but it was different. It wasn't our IHOP with all the singers and all the musicians. It wasn't our J-Hop with a really great sound system and heat. In the winter, we have heat. That's lovely. And a toilet, too. We have a toilet and heat and a sound system. No, the Moravians are in the middle of Germany. Actually, if you've been to the prayer room, you'll see it's the Moravian Watchtower that's a picture right behind the keys. They're up there in a tower and two by two. That was their rule, is two by two, just two people every day. How many of you guys know? Sometimes even at J-Hop, it's when you're doing those prayer sets for two hours, just two of you, I, I'm always really glad when I got a praying person that's my two. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to pray with somebody when they're not going to join you for two hours of just continual prayer. Two by two, they prayed. Now, mind you, I went to this community. There's the watchtower. You go down the street a little bit, and it's like where they lived. It was kind of like their housing complex. It was a young adult community. They were like in their 20s and 30s, and it started with about 25 or 30 of them. It was a handful of them. It wasn't a lot of them. But when they started their watches, it was literally two by two, like for every hour, and they only had enough people like, just to cover the 24. Like they were, and then they started all over again. Small pitiful week. But literally, you can actually trace not only revivals, but missions movements that were birthed from that little community. I mean, we don't have time to get into all the details today of even the New England awakenings that took place that were sparked by the Moravians and by seeing their extraordinary faith. Unbelievable what came out of that little handful of people. So it's around that time that I started thinking, well, maybe God wants to do something similar to that in the new missions movement. Maybe it doesn't look like missions in and of itself, but maybe it looks like people that are sowing their life in the place of prayer, and from the place of prayer, they are doing the work of missions and preaching the gospel. So we start praying over this abandoned college campus. <laughs> praying, I actually should have brought a picture. There, I mean, Daryl and I look really, really young. But every single, every single person that we could get our hands on, whether it was Lou Engel or Heidi Baker, or I don't even remember all the other ones, we would bring them to walk this campus, and we would say to everybody, we'd tell them the history of it, and then basically be like, you need to buy it, and this is what needs to happen. And no one, everyone was like, well, somebody else needs to do that. So it was shortly after that time, Lou actually started calling. They had planted the J-Hop in D.C., in Washington, D.C. How many of you guys are familiar with the J-Hop in D.C.? They're the folks that stand out there with the red life tape in front of the Supreme Court praying for the ending of abortion. So they were established in like 2004, 2005. It was around that time. So around 2005, Lou starts calling and saying, hey, we want to plant in Boston. We feel like the Lord spoke to us that wherever the call has gone, he'll establish his house of prayer. He's like, we went to D.C. first, going to Boston next. That's the way it went with the call. That's the way we're doing it now. And I remember specifically, I said to him, I said, I'm not your girl. <laughs> That's not my bag. That's not my thing. I said to him, I said, I'm all about house of prayer. But I told him, I said, I'm praying over this college campus. There's a college campus I'm praying over, and I think God wants to release a new missions movement from this place. And even at, the, at that time, just being real, at that time, Lou did not have a huge context for what I was talking about. But again, it was like about three phone calls. Finally, I just said to him, I said, this is the deal. I will pray and I will fast for three days. If God speaks to me a word, then I'll do it. If he doesn't speak to me a word, I'm out. So let me rewind Two years before that, I had gone to Redding, California. And when I went to Redding, California, remember, I'm praying over the college campus, Bradford College. I'm in Redding, California. And mind you, I'm kind of like, what's the deal with this 
college campus. I'm like, what is my, why am I so locked onto this? I'm in Redding, California, and while I'm standing there at some um, Open Heavens co conference, one of their prophets doesn't know my name, has never seen me before. He looks right at me, we make eye contact, and he says, Bradford College. That's all he says, <laughs> like, out his mouth, and I'm thinking in my head, how does he know, I mean, it's, <laughs> and he looks right at me and he says, you have eyes for the nations of the earth. And Bradford College is the crossroads for revival to the nations of the earth. And my, so at this point, clearly I'm, you know, crying my face off. What is going on? So as he's saying that, he actually, and I didn't hear this part of the word. Thankfully, my friend recorded it. Then he goes on to say, he says, um, he said, the nations of the earth are coming to Boston and they think they're coming for a degree. Amen. And he said, but they're not. Amen. He said, they're coming for the fire of God. Oh. He said, I literally see that once God breathes upon it, the fire of God spreads across the globe. And it's interesting because many of you guys know our friend um, Banning Leapshire that was here. Before I ever knew Banning, um, I was going to like a small meeting that Lou was holding in Colorado. Banning was up at the front talking. I walked in the back. I had never met him before. I walk in, and he's kind of like, you know, staring me down. Like, and I'm just like, Nyeh. So he walks up to me, and I didn't know he, wa he was. I didn't know he was out at Reading. He walks up to me, and he said, I literally saw, he said, first I saw an image of a flame of fire. He said, I saw a flame of fire, and he said, which is you. And he said, and I saw that God was literally taking his hands and containing it. He said he was containing, uh, containing this flame of fire. He said, but I saw that instantaneously he lifted his hands, and when he lifted his hands, he blew, and fire went all around the globe instantaneously. And mind you, that has nothing to do with me as an individual. It has everything to do with Boston and its redemptive calling, that when God releases his fire in the Northeast, in this area where the nations of the earth have been amassed, the fire of God spontaneously goes around the globe. It spreads to the nations of the earth. It's amazing. So, that, so I'm in Reading, and he gives me this word about the college campuses of the Northeast, that it's um, Bradford's the crossroads for the arrival to the nations of the earth, that when God brings his fire to you know, Boston, all of this stuff. So I actually forgot. Remember we talked about promises? I forgot about that promise. <laughs> and during this course of time, Lou ended up gathering. Actually, it was before he asked me to do Boston. He gathered a bunch of us in Pasadena. That's where he was living. And when he gathered us together, it was like the year, maybe two years before, because he, let's see, he went to D.C. in 2004, 2005. So it was like 2002, 2003. He gathered a bunch of us in Pasadena. And when he did, he wanted us to move there. That was like his first. At first it was move here. And then when we didn't all move there, he went to D.C. But at that time, I can remember going. And when he was asking all of us to move to Pasadena, I specifically just said, again, you know, I'm focused on this college campus. I'm locked on to praying for this college campus. He brings us to Mott Auditorium. And when he brings us to Mott Auditorium, as soon as we, has anybody been out to Mott at all, out to the auditorium there? As soon as we step onto the campus, I see a man's face. And as soon as I see his face, I go into like travail. Any, any of you guys ever seen ugly travail? Any of you ever happened to you? <laughs> it's just the most unpleasant thing because you have no control over it. There's no like, I don't want to do this. Stop. You know, like, <laughs> it just takes over. So I am like weeping, wailing, Lou's turning to me and going, John Armott? Like, you know, you know John Armott? And I'm, and I'm thinking he's saying John Arnott. 
from the Toronto airport vineyard, you know, revival happening. And I'm confused. Therese, none of us had um, cell phones or iPhones at that time. She pulls out a disposable camera. She's the cutest thing on the planet, Therese Inkle. She pulls out a disposable camera. Lou and Lou says, this is a window. It's a window to her destiny. Let's take a picture. So... <laughs> So I'm crying, snot everywhere, just I'm a mess. Lou thinks it's great. Actually, do you have the picture, AJ? Oh, it didn't come up. It's okay. So it's literally a picture. They take it. It's of John Armott. I'm in front. Lou's there, as happy as a clam. I'm travailing. So mind you, I'm like, who the heck is John Armott? And why am I manifesting like a lunatic like this? I have no idea. I have no clue. I have no concept. I come back to Boston. I'm sitting with, a, well, I wasn't living in Boston. I was living north of the city. I come back to Haverhill. I'm sitting in a coffee shop with a friend. And it was actually this book. This is the book she was, she's reading, we're reading history books about the college that we're studying about. And um, she's got this one sitting there on her side. And I have one. Well, I happened to like glance at her, her page. And I went, John R. Mott? I was like, what's John R. Mott doing in this Bradford College? Bradford, a New England school, you know. So I'm like, what's John Armott? And she's like, who's John Armott? Like, you know, <laughs> we're all like, John Armott? And um, so I said to her, I, I said, that's the guy in California. And she's like, well, what happened in California? I'm like, I'll tell you later. I'm like, John Armott somehow is connected to this college. So remember me, travailing girl in California, like not understanding. I read this and I realize that he came to Bradford. There's a monument. We go there during our 110 intensive. Um, he, there's a monument there. He came to Bradford. So basically, John Armott is who started the student volunteer missions movement in the early 1900s. When he started that missions movement in 1910, it was 100 years since Anne Hazeltine and John, uh, no, I'm sorry, yeah, Anne Hazeltine and Adoniram Judson were sent to Burma, India. He basically came, they established a monument to com commemorate the 100 year anniversary, and then his speech is in here, and in here he pretty much says, he says, 100 years ago, those students had dreams. They had dreams to see the world evangelized, and those dreams did not come to pass. And he said, we're standing here 100 years later, and let's believe that this generation would see those dreams come to pass. And the watchword for that missions movement was the world evangelized in this generation. Can you imagine living with that vision of the world evangelized in this generation? There's some of you here today that you're like, what? I, I feel like the gospel's preached everywhere. Don't, doesn't everybody have access to Bibles? There is such a large unreached population. And when I say unreached, they have never had the name of Jesus spoken. They have never had the gospel preached. That, I mean, I know all of us like to uh, educate ourselves and be advocates for issues of justice. The greatest injustice in our generation is that the name of Jesus is not preached and the word of God is not accessible, that there are unreached people. In our day and in our age, with our ability for travel and our financial um, affluence and what we have accessible to us, there should be no place on the earth that missionaries are not there laboring to preach the gospel. I mean, we have lots of missionaries in certain geographical locations. Lots of times missionaries want to go to the same places. But when you talk about the unreached people groups, this is a very real thing. It's a very relevant thing. And most of us are completely unaware of it. But this is what John Armott lived with the vision, the world evangelized in this generation. What if we took up the, that as our cause for justice in the earth? 
that there would be no place where his name is not uttered. There would be no place. Do you guys realize so many? If you want to talk about, this morning we were talking about biblical prophecies. The prophecy in Malachi is that from the rising of the sun, even till it's going down, the name of the Lord shall be praised amongst the nations. Do you know what that means? All throughout Isaiah and even the prophets of old, even before Jesus stepped foot on the scene, the prophecy was that there would be a song of worship and incense that would arise to his name. Do you know what incense is? Incense is worship and prayer. So you want to talk about the prayer movement? It means that incense and worship and prayer would fill the globe. That in little villages, in little places that no one has even seen or heard of, there'd be one man, one woman, teams of just three people, offering him the song of worship that's due his name, that the fragrance of Jesus would fill the globe. I mean, that's a vision to live for. Most of us are living kind of for our 401k, you know, our security, what we can do, what I can accomplish in my hands in my lifetime. How about dreaming for those that have never heard the name of Jesus? How about dreaming that all of the intellect, all of the ability, all of the energy, all of the resource that has amassed itself here in Boston, instead of it being unto the glory of man, that it would be unto the glory of one man's name preached to the ends of the earth. What if all of the skill and the leadership and all of the intelligence that has amassed itself here in Boston, what if this place became a breeding ground for teachers and prophets and church planters, for musicians to go and to sing his praise in the ends of the earth? Something way beyond ourself, way beyond our resource, way beyond our ability. But you want to know something? I believe that this is what John Winthrop was seeing in his spirit when he was coming aboard the Arabella. I think this is what Jonathan Edwards was seeing. And I think that when John Armott said, the evangelization of the world in this generation, these are people with such limited resource, yet they were living with the dream of God's heart. And we have so much available to us, but yet it's easier for us just to focus on our Xbox scores. I mean, we're, we're so narrow and small in our thinking and our expectation. So the, the book, and I'm like, oh my gosh, John Armott, <laughs> start reading about the fact that he had come to this very campus where Anne Hazeltine was sent from. Start reading. To be honest, when you read about this campus, do you know what it actually says? It says they had such a move of God on this campus that it was like stepping under the thunderings of Mount Sinai. From this small campus, the whole surrounding New England area was affected. And at that point in time, with, with as far as the limitations, even from that campus alone, within those first few years, 72 female missionaries were sent abroad. It's amazing. It's amazing, and it's something that should stir our hearts. See, I, I, wanna, I don't know how many people here, you know, are, this is your home, and so you hear language about, I should check the time. Oh, we're in trouble. <laughs> we're only, we haven't even established the house of prayer yet in our timeline. <laughs> I don't know how many of you hear, you know, the language of revival history or even hearing about revival, you know, is something that we kind of dismiss And we relegate to almost like it's a broad term, it's a random term. Who knows what anybody really means by that? 
You know, I'm going to be honest with you. I can't stand that kind of language because, number one, if you read the Word of God from Genesis to Revelations, all you see is history of revival. You see revival history over and over and again. And why I say that is if you look at Sinai, if you look at Mount Carmel, if you look at Nineveh, have you guys read the story of Nineveh? That's revival right there. (laughs) The word of God being preached, sinners coming to repentance, and the whole city turns to Jesus. You actually find in the Old Testament alone, seven different times they would call a solemn assembly, they would return to the Lord, and they would reinstitute day and night worship and prayer. They didn't just gather together for one 12-hour assembly. They actually restructured their entire community and their society to reinstitute night and day worship and prayer. That's revival. Have you read Book of Acts? Book of Acts, talk about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. See, this is what we're called to, not some kind of random, ambiguous, broad, out there somewhere. Well, what does that even mean? And your your definition may be different than mine. No, the Bible, it is a picture of what we are called to be. If you need a very simplistic term to understand revival, it is to return to your first love and return to first works. It is what you were born and destined and ordained before the foundations of the earth to be and to do. It is not anything new of a concept or idea. It isn't something we're dreaming up as a fad or a phase that we're in. It is the word of God of what we're called to be as people. And you know, the word revival, you know, you think, well, I can't find that in the Bible. Sure you can. Do you realize how many times even in, take Ephesians, the word awake literally means to come out of the places of passivity, to come out from places of being dead in sin, from coming out from inactivity. That right there is a picture of revival. Come out of your inactivity. How many of us are inactive in our faith? Who was the last person we preached the gospel to? And I'm not saying to do it because you have an agenda. Today, I'm going to preach the gospel. I've got to find one person. I'm going to go harass my neighbor. I've got to find someone. No, I'm talking about because you have a burning for souls. So therefore, when you're in the grocery store, when you're interacting with people, when you're with friends or with family, whoever it may be, when you look in their eyes, all you see is you have to know Jesus. It's, It's a craving in your soul rather than an agenda to fulfill. That's what revival is. It's returning to first love and returning to first works. We're going to, we don't have time today actually to do our prophetic history. <laughs> I wanted to. It's actually, it's, it's amazing. I'm just going to say for those of you that have heard it from that little MIT dorm room, us praying that God would revive the campuses of the Northeast to at 20, what, 26 years old. It makes me laugh now because I signed a lease for a house that was like $4,500 a month and had no guaranteed income, no place of where it was coming from, wasn't sure how I would pay it. Now, like when I look back, that to me was like a lot of money at that time. And I was like, what am I doing? I got like this team of people I got to feed and got to take care of. They were kind of like my children. And, <laughs> and I was clueless. Now I look at it and I'm like, wow, if we could find a place for 4500 score. <laughs> now it's like nothing. Um, but honestly, it's just a journey of, and when we actually get into all the details of it, it's miraculous. And in all honesty, when you hear the stories recounted, even to the point, and I'll just say this, the first year we were at the J-Hop house when we first moved in, um, the same prophet that prophesied over me in Bethel 
at Reading, uh, the Bethel Church in Reading, came and knocked on the door of that house. I don't know how we found me. <laughs> I don't think we even had a website at that time. It was just me and I think two other people praying in the house at the time. Nothing public, nothing, anything. He knocked on the door of the house and he said, oh, I found you. He said, I've been following this, like, the J-Hop journey of you guys establishing here. And I'm looking at him thinking, he said, do you remember I prophesied over you when you were at Bethel? I said, yeah, I sure do. That's why I'm here. And <laughs> he knocks on the door and he says, well, I brought this team from Bethel. He said, we're here doing a pilgrimage and going to the sites of the student volunteer missions movement. He said, and we're praying for the student volunteer missions movement. And he said, and I thought of you and the word that God gave you. And he said, and when I thought of you, he said, God spoke to me a very peculiar word. I'm thinking, oh, here we go again. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, the Lord said, the mantle of Governor Winthrop is upon this house. And for those of you that don't know, Governor Winthrop is who wrote the model for Christian charity and the whole foundation and the establishing of Boston. It's Governor Winthrop who said, Matthew 5.14, for you shall be a city set upon a hill, hilltop, <laughs> a city set upon a hilltop and a light to all peoples. And I actually, I mean, we never dreamed or wanted or planned to plant a church, but I remember when he said it to me that day, as far as the mantle of Governor Winthrop resting upon our house of prayer, I realized at that moment, God has given us the grace and the authority for the, the, really the reestablishing of what God has intended for this region to be, what Governor Winthrop came to do that we would see it accomplished. So like I said, I, the, the stories are endless as far as the financial provision for poor people that had no money and no income, but God providing for us supernaturally in the city and opening doors. And we don't really have time today, but this is what I want to say. All of the establishing of what we're doing today is really the testimony of prayer. And I'm actually going to read to you um, E.M. Bounds. The effective revival leader is, is made within the school of prayer. <clears throat> what the church needs today is not more machinery or better machinery, not new organizations and more organization and novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, nor through men, but through men. <clears throat> he does not come on machinery, but he comes on men. He does not anoint plans, but he anoints men, men of prayer. And this is, as a community of people, I want to encourage us, first and foremost, to be people of prayer. And whether that is contending and believing even for the promises of God of what he's spoken, specifically in this geographic location, or if God has called you to another geographic location or another specific purpose to contend for, but your life would be bound in the place of prayer. Why don't you just stand to your feet? If there's anybody here that specifically, you know, you know that God has called you to a specific posture of faith in prayer. There is something that he's called you to pray for, that he's called you to believe for. And just even like we started this morning with the word and the charge to Timothy, that by it you would wage a good warfare, that we would be faithful and consistent with the promises that he has spoken to us to wage a good warfare. Father, I thank you, Lord, for every person that is under the sound of my voice. God, I thank you, Lord, for those that you have called to labor here, Lord, those that you have given a vision for Boston and for the Northeast. And God, I thank you for those, Lord, that are called to other places, other locations, and other communities. But God, I ask, Lord, that even today, Lord, 
as we are reminded, Lord, of the place of prayer, the simplicity of prayer, that you call us to be a people of prayer, and Lord, that you use the foolish things to confound the wise. Lord, that you take the weak things and the foolish things. And Lord, I ask, Father, that we as a people, God, that we would never um, limit or restrict ourselves, Lord, based upon our ability or our resources, or Lord, what we see in our own hands. But God, I ask, Lord, that we truly would be people, Lord, that our vision is consumed with you. God, that we have a vision, God, of your greatness and your splendor and your ability and your power. God, I thank you, Father, when we see you rightly, God, that it produces boldness and strength to believe you for the impossible. Lord, that when we have a right vision of you, Father, that there is nothing, Lord, that can intimidate us or invoke fear within our hearts. But God, that with a right vision of you, God, we become fearless people. God, standing in boldness and strength and in faith. So God, this morning, we thank you, Lord, for all that you have intended, all that you have ordained, and all that you have destined to do and to birth, Lord, out of this city. And God, I ask, Father, that we would be a people that would continually and perpetually remind ourselves, but God, also remind you, God, of what you have spoken. God, I remind you once again of the vision that you gave to Jonathan Winthrop. I remind you, God, of the promise and the hope that filled that man's heart and that man's eyes. And God, we say, Lord, for all that was sacrificed at the founding of this nation, for, Lord, pioneers who gave and sowed their life in sacrifice, God, we say, perform your word. God, let those dreams come to pass. God, I ask, God, even for the revivalists of old, Father, Lord, that sowed their life in the place of prayer and fasting for this region. God, we say truly, Lord, Lord, let New England once again be a land of awakening and missionary sending. God, I ask, Lord, that as a community of people, God, that we would dream for the nations of the earth. God, that we would dream for the unreached people groups, Father. Lord, I ask, Lord, that we would even take up, Lord, that cause of justice in our generation, Lord, that there would be no person on this planet, Lord, that has not heard the testimony of Jesus and Lord had the opportunity to feel the weight of your presence. But God, we ask Lord for the raising up God of musicians and singers. Lord, that the, the fragrance of Jesus, Lord, would fill the globe. God, we ask, Lord, for those, Lord, that you would raise up to preach the gospel. Lord, that they would not enter into some kind of competitive horse race in America to become the next great and the next big and best. But God, that they would sow their life, God, to preach to those that have never heard the name of Jesus. Lord, we say, give us a high vision of the gospel preached to the ends of the earth. God, give us a high vision of your name proclaimed to the ends of the earth. That the name of the Lord would be made great amongst the nations. And God, we say, God, use, Lord, weak and insignificant people. But Lord, those that have sowed their life in the place of prayer, we say, make your name great, Father. Make your name great. Glorify your name in all of the earth. We love you, Jesus. We're going to continue next.